power on. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here is your host, Brian Sovereign. Get ready to turn off your high men, boys and girls, because it is. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I noticed that the next Zomia One Underground episode in the Sovereign Tech feed was going to be number 386. And when I saw that, I said, that's a sign. <laughs> and it's been, it's been a little while since, uh, since we've done a, a Sovereign Top 8 and it's been a little while since we've done a, uh, a gaming grid specifically. And I thought, or, well, you know, there, there have been gaming grid specials as late. Like we were updating all of the top eights for uh, best of 2020. Of course, now we're well into 2021, uh, but some things are just so timeless. Who cares what year it is? Uh, and this is certainly an episode that we'll have to do there or that has the attitude of who cares what year it is. Um, because as this is Zomi one underground episode 386, technically we are going to talk about the technology of the 386 DX. The 386 DX was the processor that, uh, a lot of people my age cut their teeth on, uh, <laughs> uh, technically called the I 386, the I standing for Intel, of course. Um, the I three eighty six was, I mean, not exactly the start of it, but often called the, you know, for a lot of people, like I said, they cut their teeth on it, but it was for many, it was the start of the X 86 architecture. Now it's not entirely true, but it was probably its most widespread initial implementation. Um, and one that would see a lot of different forms. You might be wondering, well, what's the DX about? What is this? Sean Michaels and triple H in China kicking some ass or something. Degeneration X. No, no. <laughs> the DX was just the, the standard version of the I three 86 processor. Um, there would also be a three 86 SX, which would come down the line. Uh, and really it wasn't until the SX came out that I think a lot of people made the delineation between DX and SX. Uh, the SX was actually a somewhat inferior product in that it was designed, you know, it was, it was lower cost. And so it was designed for lower cost computers, you know, for people to be able to, um, you know, more kids could get computers, right? <laughs> so in fact, uh, originally my first, uh, 386 machine was a 386 SX technically. Um, there was also the 386 SL and can you guess what the L stood for? Most people probably wouldn't guess what that stood for, even though it makes perfect sense. And that's because they wouldn't think that these things even existed at the time. And that is the 386SL was actually the laptop version, a low-powered laptop version of the 386 architecture. So this was the start, uh, at least as far as data width, of the 32-bit era. Um, and you would see the blazing speeds 
blazing speeds of anywhere, depending upon what year you got it and what model, anywhere from 12 megahertz to 40 megahertz. That's 12 megahertz. Um, that's <laughs> when you consider more of the standard today being in your, well, I mean, and not even getting into overclocking, but in the, uh, the, the three gigahertz to four gigahertz range. And, you know, I mean, and now everything's about multiple cores and everything. We're still talking about a level of speed, literally thousands of times slower than what your, even your cheapest laptop really uses today. But at the time, the 386 was a revelation and a revolution over the 286. Um, it would not be as, uh, certainly it would be v its successor, the 486, which I don't know if we'll wait until Zomi one underground episode 486 to do, to cover, uh, to do a top eight around that. Um, but its successor would certainly, uh, change the game in very literal ways. Uh, and then, you know, from the 486, you'd end up not with the 586, but what a lot of people would call the 586, but it was really just would start the nomenclature of the Pentium uh, from Intel. But what we're doing here by going so far back in time, again, the 386, uh, if I didn't say it already, actually first started or, or was first launched in 1985 and would continue to be in production until, wait for it, 2007, you know, I got to tell you, I I've, I had held actually when I was, um, when, when I got my 486, uh, my 386 was basically put out to pasture, uh, as a, as a young person. And I held that 386 processor. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, even when I was a little kid, I wasn't a little kid. I've always been, you know, a big guy, uh, I mean, that, that thing, it felt like it was the size of the palm of my hand as <laughs> a monster, you know, just solid as a rock and almost in a very literal sense. They used to make those things really tough. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think about even uh, more modern processors, even up to like, I don't know, the Pentium threes or fours. And I mean, you're just, especially like with the Pentium fours and up, you're just terrified of bending any of those pins, even in the slightest on the bottom of the processor. With the 386, you ain't scared of shit. <laughs> you could run a truck over those pins and they weren't going to bend. <laughs> I exaggerate a little, uh, but man, what a beast of a machine. And understand that I went, um, I mean, I always like, I trace my roots really to the Commodore 64. Um but the 386 was certain, I mean, the Commodore 64 was a real computer. I'm not taking anything away from that. But for a lot of people, and even to this day, it's still just seen as a console, uh, you know, because it did play games so fucking well and had some genuine classics, uh, fairly exclusive um, to it. The 386 is what I would really argue my first computer. Um, I've always had computers in my life. Uh, I mean, my dad just, well, you know, when you, when, when your dad's a guy that worked on the Voyager program, I mean, computers are just kind of everywhere, you know, even, even in the eighties, <laughs> but, uh, but the 386, that was, that was the one when I remember a very, very young me getting on that and saying, actually, you, you know, it's funny. Because what we're going to do here is a sovereign top eight of the top eight games 
that are from, that can be played on a 386 and are more or less from the 386 era. Okay. Uh, and I'll talk more about that, you know, why we're going with 386, um, in a minute, but you know, my 386 and running, you know, DOS and windows three, one, um, really like set my dreams on fire to, to be a writer, to be an author because of just that endless paper. I mean, in many ways, you know, what got, what made me into a, um, uh, a tech enthusiast at the time, because <laughs> I don't know how much I could say that these days, but at the time what you know, or certainly what got me into tech and what, you know, very much, uh, uh, kicked off my career in the technology world was that 386 more so than any other, you know, yes, the Commodore 64 is awesome. And like I said, I like to trace my roots to it and I call it my first computer, but the 386 is what got me into computers. I mean, Star Trek was, was essential to that as well, but you know, just because like, oh, well, this is where computers can go, but then you didn't really see a computer that you believed could go that distance. that could go to that Star Trek future until you got to the 386. And I think a lot of people really feel that way. I mean, or, you know, some people were more of the Mac type where the Macintosh came in at that stage and they're like, ah, oh, that's the future. And I'm not going to argue against you. Cause like that all in one machine, that was the, you know, the OG Macs. I, I love those. Those things are awesome. Um, but the 386, I mean, it just looks so cool and it really did look like the future and having all the riser, you know, all the cards on and everything, you know, I left my 386 just, you know, I cracked the case open and would often just leave it open because I just love seeing it. It just looks so damned cool. But not only that, and I guess for my own nostalgia and my own fondness uh, and or, or origin of my fondness, uh, the 386 that we had was the first computer that was in my room. It wasn't one that we connected to the TV in the living room. It wasn't one that was available for everybody to use. It was the computer that, as well as the 486 that would succeed it for me, uh, was the computer that was always in my room. And that made it extra special as well. Uh, and I mean, and I just used the fuck out of it. And because really, I mean, no one else in the house was that, frankly, was that interested in using it. I think they got enough kicks out of, you know, the other machines around, or, you know, they'd play their, their, you know, the NES or something like that, which great, you know, rock Nintendo, I would too. But, um, man, I mean, once see, that's the thing is that when you go from the NES and you play those amazing games or even great games on Commodore 64, and then you get to the games that you could play on your first 386 computer. And, you know, as much as classics and games that I still play to this day, that were on the NES, you know, the original Nintendo that were on the com on Commodore 64. I can't, I, I, I gotta tell you when, when I, when I first played games on my 386, you know, I kind of side glanced down the hallway into the living room and I could see the NES console and I could see the Commodore 64 and they just, you, you know, to quote Shakespeare, they, they held their manhood cheap. I mean, they <laughs> like, they, they were just wimpy machines in comparison to the masterpieces that I was playing on the 386. I mean, these weren't games. These were experiences. In fact, maybe I should title the episode that the 386 experiences, the top eight 386 experiences, because this was the first time that games really felt like giant experiences. I mean, the only game that came close 
at the time, you know, on the NES would be like, would be legend of Zelda as far as scale. Um, or, or, you know, maybe chrysalis, you know, those, some of those latter ones. Um, I mean, these, these were, these were fucking epics, you know, it was like going from silent films to, to Ben Hur. That's, that's, that's the night and day difference. Um, and for a long time, like I actually was uninterested in the, the, the 16 bit era, uh, you know, or well, depending upon what system you're playing, but the, you know, the, the whole competition between the Genesis and the super Nintendo, you know, I thought was, was a bullshit competition for a good chunk of, of my youth because what did it matter? None of them could do what my 386 could do or my 486 could do. Didn't even come fucking close. And I even let, in fact, we'll, we'll talk about this because I had a, a very, uh, uh, <laughs> I had an experience that really slapped me in the face about just how different, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the console versus the PC was at the time. I mean, now, now it's, it's, yeah, you can get better graphics and everything, you know, on, on a computer and blah, blah, blah. And maybe there are some bigger experiences and, and there's, you know, the fact that a computer can play fucking anything, especially with emulation and whatever else, um, you know, the PC master race, which I support that, that term wholeheartedly, uh, is, you know, is still dominant, still a thing, but boy, in the nineties, I mean, dominant isn't even the word <laughs> like <laughs> we'd have to come up with a, with a term. I mean, you could say total domination, but no, I think it just needs a stronger term. You, you weren't the PC master race. You were a God in comparison to consoles, um, at the time. Now, as far as why I'm breaking up this, this top eight into 386, and yeah, you can probably guess there's going to be one about the 486 is because, so in the nineties, and this is just the nature of PC gaming, especially in the nineties, in the nineties, um, there were, I mean, you could maybe, you could actually probably do a top eight by year, but there were just so many computer games. I mean, it's so fucking many and so many great computer games. I couldn't begin to do a top eight, you know, and, and, and like I, I'd, I'd have, I'd basically have to do it by year, um, at least to try and come up with something that could, that could begin to, you know, uh, uh, cover, um, everything that was coming out at that time, um, on PC. So I thought it'd be interesting instead of going by year, you know, maybe at some point we'll get into that, but there are just some experiences, you know, that I think you can, if you break it up between 386 and 486, even though the 486 obviously could play anything that was on a 386, not necessarily vice versa. It's just, there was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cross pollination there, a lot of crossover that, that makes it very confusing. And so finding something to differentiate something to, you know, to create a, a, um, uh, a cutoff point, I think makes the most sense is actually by, by processor. Um, and really to talk about games when we're doing a top eight for the 386, uh, doing it with games that were really specifically made more for the 386, you know, I mean, cause for example, on this top eight wasteland could easily be on there, but wasteland is from 1988 was not, I mean, in the 386 existed, but wasn't, you know, wasn't really made or built with, uh, the horsepower that the latest gen 386, uh, you know, could bring to bear. So. You'll basically find here that most of these games 
came out between, well, anywhere between 1991 and really 1995. 95 is when games started to come out or, or when games were not that they weren't taking advantage of the 486 before, but that this is when they said, okay, no, you have to fucking have a 486 deal with it. You know, <laughs> actually we'll get into a funny story around that uh, too, around a game that I really wanted to put on my 386 list because I played it on my 386, but I'll explain why it's not on this list when we, when we get to it. So, why don't we go ahead and just start breaking, you know, breaking right into this top eight list. Um, again, I mean, I've already given you the history of what the 386 meant to me. I'm sure that a lot of people and, and, you know, to, to understand age, like I said, a lot of people my age have incredibly fond memories and probably you, I'm sure you could rattle off a top eight in no time. Um, it actually like my, my mind was a little, little hazy or my memory, I should say, was a little hazy on, wait, what did I play on my 386 and what did I play on my 486? Some were very clear. Like I could really, you know, like the memories were, were very, very crisp uh, on what was on the 386 because I, I know I know what those computers, you know, how different they looked. But then also there's a lot of games, again, anything, you know, it's, it's just an Intel compatible PC or IBM compatible PC, right? That's how they used to uh, label it. So it didn't matter, you know, you could play basically anything that was on, you know, that, that you had before that you played on your 386 on your 486 that, you know, it's just a computer. There's, there's no real difference. Um, I mean, and then things really haven't changed today, even though there are, boy, there is a real fucking push to like eliminate compatibility with previous versions of windows than, uh, you know, to windows 10, which is just damned odd because windows seven is still so white hot. Um, <laughs> Anyway, myself, I was born in 1981 and in just a few days, I am going to be 40, which I really can't believe, but it's there. <laughs> that means that I'm talking about, uh, games that I played 25 to 30 years ago, which is also incredibly hard for me to believe. And what I think is, is actually really amazing. And this speaks to the power of games is that, I mean, I can remember a lot, but I don't remember, like, obviously I, I know there are a lot of things that I've forgotten. I mean, there, there's like, there's just so much that I've forgotten, but these games, these, as I said earlier, experiences really have stuck with me more so than just about, you know, anything really anything, even in like the PlayStation two era, you know, or, or games like on, on the Wii. I mean, these are games that are absolutely foundational. And I don't think it was just because I was young. I think it's because they were just so brilliant, creative, and especially at the time, awe-inspiring, just pushing the limits of technology and game mechanics, um, or, you know, setting new standards at least, uh, that, you know, these are games that you can absolutely, I, I say this, that even though it's been that long of a time, I think these are games that still absolutely hold up today. Every single one of these games that I am going to list off in this top eight, and it was sort of my top criteria, is that do these games still play well today? We could talk about a lot of games back then that, oh yeah, they were awesome back then, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to play them now, right? Like you're not going to play Jill of the Jungle. Um, 
among others, you know, that they're, they're just, they're, they're not going to hold up. Even though at the time you might've said, holy shit, this is, this is game of the year, you know, it's fucking amazing. But every one of these games I think still holds up today, still is an absolute pleasure uh, to play today. And some of them, in fact, have no real modern corollaries, in my opinion. Like they, they, and there's no good reason for that. Um, one of them, I'll get into it when we get to it. I really, there's a part, there's a big part of me that wants to get that good. At, I mean, you know, I'm a game developer, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not that great at it. Okay. I, I mean, I, I have good ideas, but you know, I'm not like a, a, a pro coder, uh, as, as far as that goes anyway. Um, a part of me wants to like really, really, I'll save it. Basically. I just want to become a better game developer because I would love to make more of these kinds of games, but we'll save the conversation for when we get to it. So let's start going down our top eight with all of that said. Now, as I almost always say with, uh, with these uh, top eight lists, look, if you're in the top eight, you're basically number one. So there's no real order to this. Um, they're all the best at what they do. And I, I mean, and, and this is true for this list, like every single one of these, I mean, maybe a couple of them, I would put in a, a more second tier, but basically every single one of these could be considered, you know, one of the greatest games ever made, um, or, if not one of the greatest games ever made, I mean, could easily be, you know, like a top game and one that you'll just play hours and hours and hours, tens of hours, maybe even years uh, rocking. In fact, some games from the 386, 486 era, some people are still playing those games to this day. You know, they're, they're doing 20 year binges. I mean, that's no joke. So <laughs> off the same, same goddamn save file. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but anyway, so number one, Again, it's not number one, but they're all number one. Number one is uh, a game that I am surprised never was never turned into a full on series. Um, I know there was an attempt. I want to say in 2005 to kind of revitalize it and it just didn't take off, but that's because the the game they made was just kind of generic. Um, But the, the originator, uh, and again, I, I, I still don't understand why this isn't a franchise or why someone else hasn't picked up with this is one must fall 2097 from 1994. Now understand I am a massive mortal Kombat fan. Um, I've even played mortal Kombat competitively, uh, recent versions of that, you know, not even talking about back then, but, and, and, and certainly while, I mean, mortal Kombat was, to be fair, Mortal Kombat was kind of the game that made me look at consoles again. Now you could pl- actually, you could play Mortal Kombat, I think on a 386, um, and it was far better than, you know, like the Super Nintendo or Genesis versions. It was actually an arcade perfect port where it had the strength challenges and all that in it. So, you know, I could play Mortal Kombat and I would play Mortal Kombat on that. But, you know, the way that most people were playing it at the time was, you know, rocking two player, you know, on their SNES or something like that. And I, admittedly, like until it did get ported to PC, I was looking, you know, uh, 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 so with with a hint of jealousy, like, oh, I, I want that experience. <laughs> but anyway, um, 
I didn't feel too bad about it. And that is because of this game, that being one must fall 2097 from 1994. Uh, one must fall is a fighting game with gigantic robots. I think that's enough said, uh, but, <laughs> but it's actually, it, it's tremendous. Um, the, you, you had weapons upgrades. Um, you could choose from, uh, quite a few different, uh, uh, robots. I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, four or five characters really had, you had, you know, eight, nine, 10, uh, and, and then you also had like different paint jobs. I mean, there was a lot of customizability. The soundtrack for it was amazing. One of the best game soundtracks in my opinion ever made. Um, I mean, really intense, really upbeat. It, it's, I put it in a level with like, say streets of rage Two, as far as like quality of soundtracks and really soundtracks that you can dig and really listen to without the game, without knowledge of the game or, you know, without, you know, any, any memory of the game or anything, just like streets of rage Two. Um, the, a, a lot of the elements, and I don't know what they really like borrowed from other fighting games when they developed one must fall. But everything from like the nice slow motion uppercuts and all other kinds of, I mean, like everything about this game made, gave it a real cinematic and very epic feel. Um, the music, seeing the scale of the robots, uh, the, the, you know, the levels that you would fight on. Okay. Um, were often interactive, which was somewhat of a new thing. I mean, you'd see in street fighter two or, you know, whatever game where, or like mortal Kombat, where, yeah, okay. You can knock somebody down into the pit for a fatality or, you know, maybe a box would get broken. You know, when you, when you toss somebody around, you know, these kinds of things uh, would be in fighting games, but this was one where like you would uppercut another robot, you know, against like the cage and they'd get electrified if you, if you banged them up against it hard enough. Um, the different robots had dramatically different styles. It wasn't just a matter of like different special moves like you would have in, in a street fighter or mortal Kombat. And I'm not taking anything away from those games. Those games are, are the, some of the greatest ever. And I love them. Um, but it wasn't just like that. It was dramatically different fighting styles because, you know, the robots, sure. Some of them were bipedal. Others rolled around others, you know, had different kind of motions or you had like this one that was called the shadow where it had almost like Johnny cage moves where, where, you know, like Johnny cage's shadow kick where it could do this like shadow motion that where he could just dash right through you. And it, just fucking great. <laughs> it's a perfect game, uh, which again, it blows my mind considering how much clear passion and love went into the first uh, one must fall, how there, how it hasn't been an ongoing franchise. Now, like I said, they did, I, they did try to pick it back up with what was called one must fall battlegrounds in 2005, but there was nothing innovative. And, and I don't think really the passion was there. It was just kind of blah. Uh, and that was specifically for windows, uh, that, that game. So, you know, it didn't live up to that, but you can still, you know, crank out DOS box and, and rock one must fall. Um, I have to admit, I'm actually a little pissed off because I am pretty certain that GOG has never, uh, uh, or has not made this game available. In fact, I am typing that in right now. And basically what pisses me off is that, you know, GOG has really become, um, yeah, no results found. Yeah. So they, they've never brought this GOG's lost its way. It's just a bit of side commentary here. 
Um, I'd rather buy on GOG than I would on Steam. But, you know, I get notification. I think GOG's got a got a, a massive, you know, catalog sale going on every single day now. Like it's not even, you know, once a season or once a month. It's like every single fucking day. All I want them to do is keep re-releasing old games. <laughs> like I don't care. Like I don't care about the sales because they're not doing anything interesting. You know, it's like, okay, I can play something that's like everything else that comes out today as to where, what I'm, you know, what, what you're going to see as we go down this list of games here for the 386, you know, there's a lot of classic games that some of their gameplays never really been replicated or, you know, maybe you got a sequel on the four, you know, in, 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 in its time frame in the 386, 46, uh, you know, time frame, but then it just fell off the map. And that's a pity. And GOG really had the chance to, uh, you know, to, to take modern gamers to school in a good way. And, uh, they, they've fallen off that horse. Fuck them. I, I mean, I, I don't mind saying that. Like, I don't even care what bullshit's going on with cyberpunk 2077 or whatever. They have me pissed off just because no fucking release old games. There are still so many more to release. Some of which are on this list. In fact, let's get to number two here. Um, this is one that I know why it doesn't get re-released. And that's because the people who control the franchise, who control the license for the games, uh, in this, in this franchise, uh, are fucking assholes and, you know, are, are far more scum than GOG could ever really be. Uh, and that, that, that would be a, a guy named Brian Herbert, who's the son of a veritable authoring God being Frank Herbert. And of course, you know, we're talking about Dune. Dune 2, the building of a dynasty. I don't know. Um, when, when this came out in 1992, so I was about 11 years old when this came out. You know, everybody talks about like their tween years and how it was so confusing, right? You know, like the ages between 10 and you know, 10 to, to like, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. Um, I think my entire tween years was basically just playing Dune 2. Me and my friends all playing Dune 2, you know, like I, I wasn't confused at all. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was taking out Harkonnens, I mean, <laughs> you know, or I was, I was doing some sly shit with the Ordos. I, I mean, I, no, no confusion. In my tween years, my tween years were laser focused on avoiding sandworms. Damn skippy. And, uh, I mean, this is, you know, the, the legend of, of this game is, uh, I mean, and, and actually it's a tremendous story to, to look into. Um, but more or less, let's just call it, this is the game that, you know, whether there were other, you know, proto, you know, other examples that might've been a little earlier, this is the game that started the entire genre of real-time strategy. And that, that is no mean feat. Uh, and, you know, for console players or people who have been predominantly console their whole life, maybe that doesn't mean so much to them. But for PCs, RTSs, to this day, you know, I mean, are, are, are really like, that's flagship stuff. Um, and, well, you know, I mean, now more people are playing like, you know, MOBAs, right? You know, like Dota 2 and, or whatever the hell they're playing. 
but RTSs, you know, were, were, were the, uh, uh, the godfather of all those, you know, of, of a lot of different styles of popular play today. And Dune 2 really started it all. Um, they were very intelligent in playing off of the stylings of what David Lynch put together in, uh, you know, and of course in his original Dune film. Um, and as my man, Rob, uh, Robin Freebeard would say, you know, there is nothing before or since that looks like David Lynch's Dune. And he's absolutely right. And I'm sure he'd agree with me. Dune two is, is the thing that looks like it, you know, but that's only because it's based on that material. And I think it was very smart of them to, you know, take that incredible look and designs, like even the little things that were in that film, like the trikes and so on. Uh, what, a, what a great move, you know, to, to, to run with those, uh, incomparable, uh, futuristic designs that were in that film and putting them into a game. So in many ways it was, you know, I, I got to, uh, you know, basically play, it felt like the sequel, uh, to the movie. And I'll often bring this up because a lot of people would talk about how games based on movies generally sucked up until, you know, maybe more recent times, but even then, um, I don't think that's a hundred percent true. And I also don't think that that was ever really true. Uh, I mean, enter the matrix certainly broke that mold, I think. And I've, and I've talked about that where, and I think where a lot of people felt like, Oh, well, this is a time where it really worked. I feel like Dune two, the building of a dynasty was, and really the Dune franchise in general was a case where, nope, you can base games on a movie and they can be fucking great. And these were the games. Okay. Now shit that came out on consoles. Yeah. I, maybe that rule might be true, but on PC, that wasn't so, um, I mean, because figure, you know, emperor battle for Dune, Dune 2000, all of those from Dune two to those and up, you know, they were all borrowing the style of David Lynch's Dune and and it just made even, you know, even in, in not when they were doing full motion video, like they wouldn't later do in games. Um, it just translated perfectly even to, you know, VGA graphics, right. Um, you know, on your 386, uh, masterpiece of a game Dune 2. Uh, it's, it's probably, again, it's being held up completely by the Herbert estate. Uh, fuck them. And I mean, maybe someday it would end up getting re-released, but fortunately it's easy enough to play, um, you know, like open source, uh, versions of it, as well as like, there's whole websites online where you can just play it, you know, right on the website with HTML five or whatever. Uh, or yeah. Anyway, you, you can play this. It's not, not, not a challenge to do so. And it still plays in my opinion, just as well. In fact, I love it for its simplicity. Uh, and you can get into other versions where you can put in like Super Dune 2, which has the Fremen and Sardaukar and everything else that, uh, you know, where you could play with more factions other than the original three. But this is this is the really the, the start. This is the archetype of the real time strategy. And again, I, I still think it's absolutely brilliant and plays well. And it's a very true experience to for longtime Dune fans. Um which is also precious because we don't get respectful content really anymore ever since, you know, Brian Herbert started the whole house of trades bullshit. Um, so, or, you know, that the book series that started with house of trades and then, you know, has gone on into areas that there's just no fucking way that Frank Herbert wrote that many notes, but I digress. 
we'll move on to, uh, to number three. Number three is also from 1994. It's amazing as we go through this list. And when you just go look at like games in 94, what an amazing year that was. We, you know, man, if we did want to do a year breakdown, 94 would be brilliant. But in 1994, we got a game that, um, also assuaged, I think the jealousy, some of the jealousy that PC gamers may have had for their console brethren in that, you know, a lot of people would look at Mario Kart or even like an F zero and say, Oh, wow, that, that looks really fun. <laughs> like, like that's really kind of cartoony and wild. And, and yeah, that boy, I bet that's a good time to do. Well, we ended up getting wacky wheels, which is absolutely a Mario Kart ripoff, but it's a brilliant one. Uh, you end up with, you know, and certainly I think it would inspire super tux card as well, which is also a great game. Um, it has the same graphic stylings as Mario Kart. Uh, it has different animals. There's a moose, a panda, all these different types. Um, you have weapons and everything that you can do. Uh, in fact, it's funny. I feel like there are a lot of elements that would be put into wacky wheels that would actually end up getting put in Mario Kart games later on. But this was such an accessible racer uh, for PC, which was not common at the time. I mean, PC, there, there were lots of racing games on PC, but they, they really focused on a hyper realism. Um, and you know, really for the time detailed graphics, this was one pick up and play, go at it and have the time. Um, and, and it was brilliant, you know, and, and there were, I think a lot of people actually, I can remember quite a few people I that I had played with at the time, um, that, you know, said, well, this is way better than, than, than playing Mario Kart. Now, I don't know if certainly later versions of Mario Kart, it, it, you know, it couldn't possibly compete with, uh, and Mario Kart is probably the best selling game series of all time. It's gotta be up there by now. If you count all the entries, you know, all eight or nine entries, depending upon how you want to count them. Um, but you know, cause eight and eight deluxe, right. Two, two different games, or, I mean, they're the same, but you, you get it. But uh, Wacky Wheels, boy, did they did they give it the college try. And I think they delivered an awesome game and a game that at the time really was superior to what Mario Kart was delivering. And that's, you know, you beat you beat Miyamoto at his own game. That ain't easy. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I, I loved it. And and again, it's it still plays really well, really cute uh, still today. And just one that, that anybody can play. In fact, it was the only game I can remember my grandparents like wanted to play with me because they just thought it looked so wild. Um, you know, I mean, and, and understand, you know, back when Mario Kart came out, Miyamoto was, I mean, there's interviews where you can watch him talk about this, where he says he's, this is the greatest game I've ever made. He might even still feel that way. And you think about all the things Miyamoto had done after that. Uh, so, so, you know, to be able to successfully mimic and in some ways supersede a game that Miyamoto considers his personal favorite, that's greatness by its very definition. So we'll go with wacky wheels there at number three, let's move on to number four. Now, number four is where, you know, when I say the word 386 experience, this was an experience like no other. And really for, for 10 year old me, you know, <laughs> one of the things that, that people always associate with me, I know this won't surprise anybody is Star Trek. Um, 
And, you know, I'd like, it's just, there, there were certain things, certain shows that you always wanted to see, boy, I wish this could be a video game, you know? And certainly there had been Star Trek video games. In fact, there was the, uh, the arcade game for Star Trek, uh, kind of based around more of the motion picture and so on. Um, that was all vector graphics and everything. I mean, it was cool for what it is, you know, you're blowing up Klingons or whatever. And that, but that didn't exactly feel like Star Trek, right? Um, I mean, even at, at that time, Star Trek was just so fucking core to me, but you know, there's lots of shows like that. Like to this day, I think the one game we've always wanted and the closest thing that ever got to it would be like your grand theft autos. The one game we, or Shenmue, maybe the one game we've always wanted is MacGyver. We want a MacGyver game where we could just fucking do anything, <laughs> you know, make anything out of anything and just solve anything with anything. Right. Those have always kind of been the dream. Well, in 91, and this is again, one of those experiences when Star Trek 25th anniversary came out for PC, we use the phrase mind blown a lot, but this is one where mind blown beyond all recognition to basically literally play through episodes of star Trek, new episodes at that, right? They weren't rehashing anything. This was newly written, well-written at that very well-written stories, clever stories, interesting stories that play on all the best levels uh, that, that star Trek does, you know, where it gets into like really hard sci-fi that was here. Uh, I don't, I don't know how the, so it's a point and click adventure. Okay. You know, secret of monkey Island kind of stuff. Leisure, leisure suit, Larry. <laughs> I want that mashup full of star Trek and leisure, leisure suit, Larry, um, which point and click adventures were very popular at the time. And that could be a fun top eight on its own because some of the greatest games ever were point and click adventures. Uh, but this one, you know, to have the power of all of those stories, the power of the characters and to be able to do so many different things, get into starship battles, explore on planets, you know, uh, I mean like control power levels on the enterprise, just doing all the different shit that you could do going from star system to star system and even getting to revisit some classic villains from the original series. And yes, this takes place entirely with the original series, but you know, that's not a complaint from me at all. Uh, this, this is yeah. Mind blowing. Um, you know, it's the kind of game you think can't happen and did happen. Like you never thought at the time, especially that, oh yeah, I'm going to be able to play a Star Trek game where it actually feels like I'm in Star Trek. No, this was a Star Trek game, Star Trek game. And it felt like you were in Star Trek. It of course would have a sequel that I think was superior in every way, not taking anything away from 25th anniversary. Both of them you should play, but the sequel judgment rights, I do consider one of the greatest games ever made. Uh, and both of these, and actually both of them would get, um, would get like a, 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 not a remastered, but they get a collector's edition kind of re-release. This used to be a popular thing where games that would initially come out on disc would, you know, get some extra features and get put onto, or, you know, on diskette, and then we'd get some extra features or whatever and get put onto CD to bolster CD-ROM sales and whatever else. A bit of a double dip, but usually it really, they really did something well and, you know, really brought an improvement to the game. And this was one such case where, 
in the CD-ROM version compared to the diskette version of both 25th anniversary and judgment rights for Star Trek would add in um, the uh, complete voice cast by the original actors. Uh, in fact, judgment rights would be the last performance by DeForest Kelly before he died uh, as Dr. McCoy. And that stands for something. Now, I, technically, and we're not going to talk about it here. There was going to be a game. Boy, it looked like it would have been amazing. Secret of Vulcan Forge or Vulcan Fury. Secret of Vulcan Fury. Um, that technically had the last, last, last recordings of DeForest Kelly. Um, but, you know, that that never got released. So as far as like released purchasable work, it is the last performance of DeForest Kelly. And he just knocked it out of the park, as you would expect uh, someone of his caliber would. But uh, yeah, you felt like you were playing through episodes. Um, and really, you can play both 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights, and they can be treated as like the fourth and fifth season uh, of Star Trek if you really wanted. And, you know, if in your head canon, you wanted to do that fucking dynamite, do it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they're, like I said, it's great writing. You know, it's not only like intriguing puzzle gameplay and everything, like it's actually great writing. Uh, so th these are, these are just must plays, if, especially if you're a Star Trek fan, like there, there's just no, you're getting the performances from Shatner, you know, uh, uh, Nimoy, Kelly, Michelle Nichols, James Doohan. I mean, you're getting all of it. How could you not want to experience that? If anything, go watch the, the game movie on YouTube. But anyway, yeah, Star Trek 25th anniversary. That's at our number four. Going to number five. This is where, you know, the idea that somehow like mobile gaming is what brought on casual gaming. That's horseshit. Um, these are games that there, there's a couple games on this list that I feel like you can really are so well done. You can almost play them mindlessly. Like you can almost be in a, um, dare I say a, a state of gnosis. <laughs> you can almost be there and, and, and play these games. Um, this is, and in fact, this series would end up on, on other platforms than just, uh, just PC, but, uh, cannon fodder, just a lot of fun, brilliant kind of game. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a, what you would call a, a, a real-time tactic, uh, a real-time tactics game. And this is one of, this is one of those game styles that I feel like has completely died and fallen away. And I don't know why, because I love it. Um, well, I, I don't want to get into that big conversation here, but it has a bit of an isometric view. Okay. So, so it, it almost has a 3d effect, even though it's really just 2d graphics. Um, but just, just a lot of simple fun play and the game doesn't take itself seriously. You're controlling like a little platoon of anywhere from like three to five guys and you're just going around and you know, whatever the mission objectives are and you're really tiny. I mean, you're really, really tiny. It's almost like the army men games before the army men games were a thing. And you, um, 
you know, you, you have to, to shoot the little guys and, and then there's, there's some real strategy involved too. Like if you get into water, you can't fire your gun, but maybe you can lob, uh, uh, grenades and you might have to blow up buildings, but then you gotta be careful because the roof can come off of the building and land on your little guys. And then they all die. And, uh, and, and like they go up in rank, the longer they stay alive. So there's incentive, even though it seems like you have an endless stream uh, of new soldiers, just like in real life. No, I'm kidding. Uh, they, they, uh, there's incentive to not, you know, go through them all and, and to see how, how far up the ranks, how long you can keep them all alive. But again, it doesn't take itself seriously. It has very comedic elements to it. And it, it's, it's cute. If anything, ironically, I know, but really play it. You'll see what I mean. And, and I just, I, I love the simplistic gameplay of it. And, you know, eventually you can get in vehicles and you can do all this other stuff. And, and there's just, there's a lot of, there was a time in the nineties where, uh, especially, you know, PC, uh, game developers were trying to create these more casual experiences. Like you think of, um, Yoda stories, right? Star Wars, Yoda stories, where it's just this little game kind of off to the side, or, uh, they did one for Indiana Jones as well, where it's like, yeah, you can get into it. It's kind of off to the side or even starship creator for star Trek, where you could go into like a mini mode and basically you could have your ships doing missions while you're doing other shit on your computer. Uh, there was a little while where, where they were trying to do this, where it was games, you know, sort of in the background. Now this isn't a game that ends up in the background. It doesn't play by itself in any way, but it is one that I feel like, you know, you really can just get into it. The controls are just dead simple. Uh, but there's, there's a little bit of addictive strategy to it and interesting incentives to keep you going and, and to actually try hard if you want. So I, I love cannon fodder so much. And they, they did make a sequel, uh, which, you know, just improved on the formula. Again, I don't know why there aren't more. This is another one where there, there should be plenty, but still plays perfectly well today. The next one is similar in abstract, not that it's real time tactic or, um, or isometric or anything like that abstract in that this is a game that the controls are just so simple and tight and there's just enough to, to make you, you know, to get you interested or to keep you really interested. But the controls are just so fluid, especially with a mouse. And you wouldn't think you'd want to play this kind of thing with a mouse. Um, you know, I, I, and you can kind of play it mindless. It's just, it, it's a brilliant little game. And this is Raptor Call of the Shadows from 1994. This is basically a top-down shmup. You know, think you're like, you know, 1943 from Capcom and, the, and, the, and that style. But it's not like the enemies move slower. The enemy, you know, you're in a, you're in a fighter jet. The enemy jets and everything else, and you have to shoot things that are on the ground and in the sky and whatever. Um, they most of them move kind of at a slower speed. So the game has a little bit of a more methodical, slower pace. It's probably the most methodical shmup I can think of next to something out of like the defender Stargate series and, or the defender series. And I don't know if it's the slow pace, the fact that, you know, you can go to the weapons emporium at the end of it and, or, you know, at the end of each uh, sector that you clear and you can purchase, you know, depending upon how much money you make, uh, you can purchase, you know, varying, uh, uh, you know, weapons, improvements, shields. Um, there's even like little technology scanner technologies that you can buy into. There's, there's a lot of really cool ideas in the nineties, especially that 
you know, a lot of customization, which again was unheard of on much in the way of consoles at the time. And that was really setting the PC apart, not just the significantly better graphical power, but really the, the, the customization and depth of games, even games that were, you could argue are fairly simple to play, uh, you know, made them something special. And again, the, just the tempo, that's the word I want to use here. The tempo of Raptor Call of the Shadows is so rare for a shmup. I think that's why it stands out to me because I mean, I've played more shmups than I can, than I can count. Uh, <laughs> like I, I really, I can't count them, but this one always stands out. Um, also PC didn't really have a whole lot of shmups at the time. So I think it stood out for that reason as well, but just the pacing of the game is very interesting. I know like twin B would kind of would have somewhat of a similar pacing, but there's just something special here. And the fact that you could really switch out and choose between weapons and that you had to switch, you know, mid sector, like, like while you're playing in real time, you'd have to switch between ground-based weapons or aerial weapons, or do you want to use something that can kind of do both? That was really cool. Or having weapons that could track really well, like the minigun that could just like send bullets everywhere. But then like, you could also, you know, you're controlling this, fighter jet with your mouse, move it a bit to the left. And like that, that sort of that stream of, of bullets that you're sending out. If you move it quickly to the left, it would turn into not a stream like you're jizzing somewhere, but it would, it would turn into like this wall of bullets, you know, just based upon the physics of the motion that you're doing and little things like that. Just, just make it, I mean, almost a hypnotic game to play because it just feels right. Uh, so awesome experience. You can get it on steam. You can get it on, on GOG. Uh, I mean, there's like different versions. I think steam has like the 2015 version. GOG is a 2010 version. I don't know necessarily what the differences are there, but it's a classic anyway. You're going to play it. Um, and you know, it has a few different sectors to go through. I mean, you'll play it for a little while. You can really, especially if you do it right. And like, once you get, kind of the most expensive weapon, the big laser cannon that just blows up everything. <laughs> you, um, you can beat it in an afternoon, you know, but it's such a smooth experience. It's, it's, it's really worth it to play. Uh, let's go on to number seven. So we're almost through our top eight here. Uh, number seven is, well, now I know, I know you're probably waiting. Wait a minute. Didn't star Wars tie fighter come out around this time? Doesn't Brian always say that that's the greatest fucking game ever made? How is that not on this list? Well, you already know, I think it's the greatest game ever made. I didn't put it on this list for that reason. It, it's just, it's a no brainer. Okay. Put it in number zero on this list if you want. But in some ways that game got even better in the 486 era. And I didn't play it, you know, until it was on CD-ROM and I played it on my 486. But what I did play on my 386 was its predecessor, Star Wars X-Wing. And for a lot of people, you know, that's considered the better game, that X-Wing is actually better than TIE Fighter. Um, I'm not going to argue about that, uh, <laughs> like at all, because they're both amazing. These are the very, I mean, the very, you know, you we I use that term experiences. Between this and Star Trek 25th anniversary, I mean, these are the experiences. Um, the... And believe me, I played a lot of flight simulators at the time, uh, including space simulators, you know, your wing commanders and so on. 
at the time, but none of them really felt like you were flying through space at incredible speeds until X-Wing and TIE Fighter dropped, you know, until those came into being. Um, I love X-Wing. You know, I know I talk about TIE Fighter all the time, but that's just because it does really, really what TIE Fighter does better is the story elements. Like it really engrosses you and you have the, the secret missions and all that. And, you know, you get the tattoos and you get to work for the emperor and all that shit like that. That's what puts that one over the top for me. But otherwise they play very similar and, you know, X-Wing has, it has its own moments. Um, you get the badges you get. I mean, it has, it has all the key elements. And, you know, if you're more of a, into the rebels, this is your game. I mean, th- this game's fucking awesome. Uh, you know, even flying through the, uh, well, it's not like an obstacle course, but like through some of the training courses and everything. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly exciting when you're, you know, you're flying the X-Wing and you know, you hear the S foils open up, you get goosebumps, or at least I got goosebumps, uh, back then. It's like, holy shit, I'm in an X-Wing. And you know, then you, you, you get the expansion packs and you get to fly the B wing and that's fucking awesome. Or you get to experience the speed of getting in an A wing. Uh, this gave you this again, there were star Wars games before very good ones, but it wasn't until this that I think you're like, you really felt like, no, I'm a fucking pilot in the Alliance or a tie fighter in the empire. I'm going to town. I'm in star Wars. Let's live it. And you lived it. Um, I, I've talked about that with tie fighter and it's just as true for X-Wing. These are lifestyle games as in you could basically live these games in the time that you're not, you could still keep living them even when you're not playing them. Right. In in many ways, my friends and I did, you know, we, we would talk about, Oh, what, you know, what'd you, what'd you do on X-Wing or what'd you do on tie fighter last night and all this. These are lifestyle games. Uh, X-Wing was, I, I, yeah, I mean, I know I, I, I might say these words a bit, but really they revelation and a revolution. I mean, both of those fit this, this game, uh, just absolutely fucking brilliant. And it's almost an insult that star Wars games, for whatever reason, still can't just be this good. I, I, I'm, I'm baffled and not baffled EA, uh, that, that that's, that that's not the case, but anyway, genius game and still plays beautifully, uh, today. I mean, it really, really does. Uh, you know, the only, actually I'll tell you the only, um, and this is a series that would do a lot of different things. The only series I feel like that, that matched up to what like X-Wing and TIE fighter were doing was actually from Nintendo, like star Fox, uh, star Fox had a similar look amazingly on the SNES. Uh, and they, they were getting there and, you know, I've never heard anyone from Nintendo admit it, but there's no way they didn't look at X-Wing and TIE Fighter and say, hot damn, these are great games. And then go off and make Star Fox. There's just no way they didn't do that, that that didn't inspire them. Had to, had to. So anyway, um, let's get into, we got one more game here to list off. Let's do number eight. And this is one I'd kind of hinted at earlier. Number eight is a game called breach three. This will probably not appear on anyone else's list, regardless of what the, you know, whatever the, the metrics are for the list, like what, what, what makes the list? What is the purpose of the list? This game 
I basically guarantee will never, unless you were doing a list of real time tactics games, which again is for some reason, kind of rare, certainly in the isometric view. I guarantee this, this wouldn't appear on anyone else's list. I don't even know if anyone else would, would remember this game. I, you know, I gotta admit, I get so annoyed. I'll, I'll watch some, I don't know, Matt McMuscles or whoever, even like toy galaxy retro black. No, not, not really. I mean, I love them, but there's a lot of YouTube channels that, that basically deal in nostalgia. Okay. They're, they're crack dealers of nostalgia and, and I appreciate what they do. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I'm not insulting their work in any way. I get a little annoyed. I'm not really annoyed at them. I get a little annoyed when they, because they'll always crack the joke about, oh, but you don't remember that. No one does and all this stuff. And every time they say that, it's something I absolutely fucking remember. Not only remember, but probably might even actively still play now and again, or look at, or it's on my fucking shelf. You know, like this is the stuff that I remember from, you know, all those years and all that time. And, you know, I, I know they're not wrong. Most people don't, but that's what I get pissed off about is that like, okay, so what you, you didn't think about, um, I don't know. You didn't think about Robotech or you didn't think about Viper or you didn't think about whatever until toy galaxy did a video about it. Like this is a shit that's running through my head all the time. I'm always thinking about all of these things. And I guess I find myself annoyed because, you know, after these guys will cover some of this shit, then people will get into it. But oh, if I, if I say it was great, Ah, uh, whatever that's Brian Sauer, who, you know, what the fuck does he know? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean like that, that's, or, or for most of my life, I feel like that's the attitude that I've gotten. Right. And it's not hipster bullshit. Don't give me that. The problem is it's not, it's not about being hipster. It's about people won't get into shit until someone popular, like maybe really popular on YouTube gives them permission. Basically people won't get into shit until they have permission to like it whatever that permission looks like, whether they get to like it now because it's okay or because, uh, Oh, actually we found out, wow, years later, this is really cool. Or, you know, whatever the fuck it is. And I just, I hate that. And I hate those people. I don't hate toy galaxy. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't hate those kind of, I love those YouTube channels. Okay. I hate the people that only get into shit until someone gives them permission to be into it. That's what I fucking hate. It ain't, it's not about being hipster. Fuck that. Never been. I've never been a hipster. I've never been cool ever. Drives me nuts. And, and you know, it's, it's not like it's because I want to be seen as somebody who has great taste or something like that. I mean, sure. That's nice if I was, but it's because it just shows how people really don't think for themselves. You know, like this is why unfortunately critics are in business. Um, well, the other reason critics are in business is because, you know, they have like uh foreknowledge that, I don't know, a remake is coming or there's going to be a live action movie made about something, or there's going to be a new show on Netflix or something like that. And they're basically priming, uh, the dum-dums, you know, for when that happens so that they can pretend, oh yeah, I know about that. When, you know, like these YouTubers say, no, you totally forgot about it. You morons. They won't say morons. I wish they would but whatever. <laughs> it's just like Alan was talking to me about this. I don't think she'll mind me sharing it. You know, 
like Alan is, is somebody who's also, I think really on the, the cutting edge of like really intellectual, you know, kind of, kind of deeper stuff that's out there. Um, and like she was talking about, okay. I mean, and this has nothing to do with the person. I don't mean Ellen. I mean, the person I'm about to say Grimes, forget about the person because <laughs> she's nuts. Grimes. That is, uh, but we were talking about this and, and, and Ellen's just like, you know, the only, like everybody, everybody says they listen to Grimes now. You know why they listen to Grimes now? It's because she's with Elon Musk it has nothing to do with like, you know, them actually necessarily liking Grimes's music as to where, you know, and, and it's true. Cause like now, you know, we'll go to places like the gym or wherever else, and they'll be playing Grimes. Like somehow her songs from like Oh six or something are, are modern hits. Right. And I mean, you got, look, you got to respect, I mean, who the fuck names titles, their album, Giddy primes. And you know exactly what that is, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's a dune. Re- that's like the ultimate pop dune reference. It's so great. But yeah, people are only into her today because, or likely, or at least most people even know who she is more because of Elon Musk, not because of the quality of her music. And that's bullshit, right? You know, again, it's people needed the permission. Okay. And the permission came really in this case from Elon Musk, which, you know, you want to talk about cults of personality. You want to talk about cults. Let's talk about people who think Elon Musk matters um, or is doing anything worthwhile and good. He's not newsflash newsflash newsflash. Sorry. Anyway, I don't know how I got down this road, but <laughs> let's get back. <laughs> let's get back on the main road here. <laughs> um, something that boy, I wish, I guess that, that somehow would come back into vogue and taste, uh, and, and that I guess people would have permission to like again are, yeah. Uh, you know, real-time tactic with that nice isometric view where you're, where you're dealing with the whole team. And maybe I'm missing the games that are out there that, that do this again, real time. You know, I'm not talking about like, you know, final fantasy tactics or something like that. I mean, where, where they're like shits in motion. Um, the breach series was really the leader, I think at the time, um, with this and, I, I just thought that that game series is brilliant. The storyline around it, you know, it's this gigantic galactic science fiction storyline around it. I, I just awesome. So much history in, in the game that you get to read and everything. And breach three was really the last of the series. Um, I, I thought it was fucking brilliant where you're commanding this entire squad and you know, you're either defending or invading, you know, or, or, or checking out doing a rescue mission, whatever you're doing. Um, in the game. And it's just so cool. Uh, Star Trek actually had a game like this. And a lot of people, I guess, didn't like it because they didn't feel like it felt like Star Trek. I get that, that a breach style kind of invasion game doesn't feel like Star Starfleet anyway within Star Trek. But at the same time, doing squad based missions felt very much like Star Trek because it felt like that's why they called it Star Trek away team because it was a fucking away team. And I didn't hear anybody complaining about, you know, elite force, right? Star Trek Voyager elite force when that's a first person shooter. Like if there's anything that's not Star Trek, (laughs) but anyway, 
Um, Breach 3 really, really had me set up for that. And I, I still love Star Trek Away Team. I think that's a great game. But Breach 3 was, was awesome. Now, this is the type of game, like I said, that really seems to have gone out of fashion and that I would love to improve my capabilities as a game developer because I would make these kinds of games all day long. I love it. It's just, it's very unique. You know, and it fits right in kind of with the cannon fodders as well. But Breach 3 is like the super serious, more strategic version of that. And, you know, and you get to bake in the story. You get to have conversations. Um, and again, it's that squad based aspect to it. You know, more of the tactical. I mean, because sure, you can have, you know, isometric, you know, Diablo, Ultima, whatever. I mean, that's fine. But where it's more squad based and you really got to think things out, it's like mixing I don't know. It's like mixing a a third person adventure game with chess. That's, that's how you can think about these kinds of games. And, and they're just, they're so much fun. It's so cool to have that kind of, kind of gameplay. Uh, And I think in some ways, you know, take for example, like world of Warcraft where you're, you know, you're going, you have your different, uh, whatever players with different abilities, you know, you have your healers, you have your, you know, magicians and whatever, and you all kind of work together to do a raid yeah, I mean, really, they, they just lifted that from these kinds of games um, like that abstract style ultimately comes from these kinds of games. And just consider how excited people get when they're doing a raid, you know, and, and, and imagine a game that's kind of really based around that with awesome story. And that's the Breach series. And, and I think Breach 3, you know, took that to it to at the time its heights. I think it could go further and I'd be honored <laughs> to make Breach 4. Um, who knows, but regardless, uh, I put that that's number eight in our sovereign top eight games for the 386. That's from 1995. That's definitely at the tail end of what was meant to be played on the 386, but it's a hell of a swan song, um, for that chipset. I mean, it really, really is. And again, that's a game I guarantee you will not appear on anyone's else's list because that's how we got into that big conversation side conversation. No one else remembers it. <laughs> I mean, they just, they just, they don't, you know, uh, and GOG fucktards will, n- will never release it probably because, you know, they don't actually release old games anymore. And, you know, this actually, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. And I know other people have, have talked about this and I know why it's never going to happen and why you always have to build it yourself because it's just, it, it's just, it's re it'd be a real challenge, but it'd be a beautiful thing. You know, sadly, it seems like the retro console craze has basically tapered completely off and lasted all of a couple of years. And it is really sad. And to some degree, I blame Sony because they did such a, such a, uh, cash in piss poor job with the PlayStation classic. Um, that I think it just burned the market. Like it just lit it on fire, you know? And also Nintendo didn't go any further. And I know I have a good ideas probably to why, I mean, I imagine it has as much to do with switch online as anything else, but um, my favorite mini console out of all that came out. And I basically had all of them. Um, Some of them I've, I've sold off, gotten rid of, you know, because I just never touched them and I'd rather have somebody else, you know, with purpose, uh, have them. (laughs) So, 
uh, or I have the games that are on it in a collection, say on my switch or something like that. And so that, that that's fine. Um, actually, I think the only mini console I have left <laughs> of all things, not that I don't have other consoles, I have full, full grade consoles, but the only mini console, only retro console I have left is my favorite of the bunch, which was the C64, um, the C64 mini. I, brilliant. And the reason I loved it is because it did take what is generally more of a complex uh, system to navigate because it is a full on computer, you know, the Commodore 64 also a little more complex, I think really to, to handle an emulation. I mean, there's great emulators for, for Commodore 64, but there's certainly not as no brainer again, because the system isn't as no brainer as the NES or SNES or Genesis and go and so on. Um, the Commodore 64 mini really made playing games on a Commodore 64 really fucking simple. And it also, you know, its biggest win, in my opinion, was that it allowed you to add games. And when you realize that the Commodore 64 game making, you know, market slash machine is still running wild today, as in there's plenty of new games made, um, you know, even in 2021, that becomes really like calling it a retro console in my, is, is a misnomer. Uh, that I think that's why I kept using the term mini console, because that's really what I think of it as just a mini version of a larger console that is absolutely as viable in 2021 as it was in 1991. And I, it's a shame that we can't get that with, with DOS games. Like I would, I would line up for uh, a mini DOS box, right? That. And again, yes, you can easily make your own. Yep. Break out your retro pie, break out, you know, where whatever. Okay. I, I know, I know you can do that, but it'd be really, really cool to have something that was based around uh DOS particularly. I mean, and, and do the cutoff of 386 or 486. That's fine to have that in like a C64 mini package, right? I, you know, and make sure it has USB ports on it and everything. I know I'm not the first person to suggest this. I know the challenge that it would be. I understand. I know why it doesn't really exist. Or if it does, it's done by enthusiasts and it's not like a standardized product like the C64 mini. But I'd really dig seeing something like that. That that would be, and especially if like the C64 mini, you could add games to it. Hot damn, that'd be slick. I, I'd be all, all over that. That'd be so cool. Uh, because there's a lot of these games that, you know, it'd be awesome if you could just toss the zip on there, you know, and 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 this DOS box mini uh, could simplify the process for a lot of people. And, I mean, you want to talk about something that would make a lot of retro gamers? Do that. Make that process easy and you're, you're going to have retro gamers come out of nowhere in droves. I mean, like, and I think that ultimately would only improve the gaming community overall because they'd see what kind of great games that no longer get made today, you know, what they were back then and how well they do still hold up. So maybe one day someone will, will figure that out. Um, but it, I know it'd be an effort and it's and frankly, it'd be an effort to get like even modern gamers to sit down in front of it, you know, uh, 
that that too. But I, 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 if you put enough hype around it, I think it'd be interesting enough. Anyway, I know you, again, I know you can do that. I know that there are, you know, more simpler ways to, to make that happen that exist already, but I'm talking about, you know, something very prepackaged and that has a little bit of a marketing machine around it. That, that, that would be awesome. So anyway, that's it. We'll wrap this one up. Your top eight, 386 experiences. I don't even want to call them games experiences. Uh, I mean, because they are just that. And if you haven't played, uh, any of these, or even just some of these, every one of these is a absolute must play experience for any gamer. And if you are into star Wars, if you are, or if you are into star Trek, these are, I mean, these are just must play games. All right, wait a minute before I wrap it up. I said there was a game that I wanted to include in this list. Note, there are no first-person shooters on here. Um, I could have put Blake Stone. I love the Blake Stone games. Could have easily put Doom on here, the original Doom or Doom 2. Both tremendous experiences. For me, the best, minus Duke Nukem 3D, the best first-person shooter uh, or Shadow Warrior, the best first-person shooter experience of that era on PC was none other than 1995's Rise of the Triad. Technically, you could play that on a 386. Here's the rub. And it was one of the things I think that actually pushed me to get a 486. Is that <laughs> when you would, when you would, you know, hit the XE, when you do, you know, when you'd start the XE for the game and you'd start playing the game, you'd get through the menu find and everything. But once you got in game, suddenly the screen was really, really small. And the frame rate, would, frame rate would be all right, but I mean, you know, it'd be really, really small and underneath the small screen that you're playing. And I mean, you'd have to, you know, get up with it on a magnifying glass underneath the small screen. It would say in little orange letters, it said buy a 486 already. <laughs> or I or no, I think it said get a 486. You know, it was just telling you like, okay, yeah, you can play it on a 386, but don't, <laughs> you know? And I, the attitude of that fucking game, that that's, that's what makes that thing so great. Uh, I love that. It just said, get a 486. <laughs> I think I want to say Quake did something similar, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Rise of the triad. I thought that was so funny. So next time we, uh, uh, we convene, perhaps we will talk about, well, I got a 486 and what did we do with that? Uh, back in those glory days. And uh, well, anyway, we may cover that next time, but plenty of other uh, shows and types of shows to appear in the Sovereign Tech feed, as well as new episodes of Sovereign Tech to come. And I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Game over. <laughs>